Are you going to play um, strong, controlling uh, interviewer and I'm going to play shy, struggling artist? Exactly. I'm, I'm going to put you through the paces. I'm going to make you think it's going to be a terribly flattering interview. And then I'm going to keep going to you. I'm going to bring up so much shit I know about you. Go for it. Hey, this is Elliot Einhorn. Welcome back to the TalkHouse podcast. Today I'm joined by... Nick Dawson, editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film. And the guys you just heard were Griffin Dunn and Simon Baker. Griffin Dunn about to just get in there and destroy the life of Simon Baker. It's going to get dangerous. It's going to get dangerous. It's going to get hazardous. <laughs> it's it's Which is fitting for... I guess we should talk about let's it. Let's jump right let's, in. Let's just jump right in. So the, the reason for this podcast is Simon Baker's feature debut as writer-director. He is, of course, best known as the lead in The Mentalist, your favorite CBS show of, of the past decade. He was also in The Ring 2. He's, he's... I kind of hate him. So here's the thing. <laughs> because he is like absurdly handsome, has the best hair, uh, is ridiculously nice in real life. And now it turns out he's a very, very skilled writer-director as well. And he also acts in this movie, Breath, as part of a, a very strong supporting cast, including Elizabeth Debicki. This, this movie is an adaptation of uh, a book by Australia's greatest novelist, Tim Winton. Uh, it's about a couple of kids, Looney and Pikelet, who are aspiring surfers who are taken under the wing of this guy, Sando, played by Simon Baker. And it's about sort of their friendship and, and the mentor relationship. And it's, it's just a, a really beautifully made coming of age movie and a great surfing movie as well. Now, Nick, you just saw this recently, as I understand, sitting a couple seats over from the one and only Hugh Jackman. That is true. I tried not to watch him watch the film because he hadn't seen it. And he's buddies <laughs> That's with, our next podcast series. Yeah, wa- watching Hugh Jackman watch movies <laughs> with Nick Dawson. Not creepy at all. <laughs> Anyway, quickly moving on. So yeah, uh, Simon Baker, just kind of all-around nice guy. And another of his friends is Griffin Dunn, who initially made his mark as an actor in movies like American Werewolf in London, After Hours, Who's That Girl with Madonna. Of course. Then sort of transitioned into uh, being a really capable director of a bunch of romantic comedies and and non-romantic comedies as well, Addicted to Love, Practical Magic, uh, The Accidental Husband. And most recently, the documentary Joan Didion, The Center Will Not Hold, about his aunt and one of America's most brilliant living writers. So Griffin and and Simon have been buddies since they met during the making of Practical Magic like 20-odd years ago. And um, they just sat down and had a a really fun chat. The guys really jump right in. And it was so cool hearing these actor-turned-directors discussing that exact switch and, and how directing really superseded as their main passion. Right. Simon talked about this thing of, of really watching directors like a hawk, he said, you know, like really observing the, the way that they mm. work and uh, being a sponge for, you know, the way that you construct a film. And it's fascinating because I feel like he has approached his acting career as a filmmaker in a way. And now he's able to put all that knowledge to such good use in, in breath. Well, it was also cool to hear about how during the filming of that movie, he's working with non-actor kids, kids who are not trained for the screen. Right. This is like one of the great surfing movies, if, if not the greatest, because it, it is completely authentic. And, and in order to do that, what he needed to do was to have kids who really knew how to surf and then 
find just the right great surfers for those roles. And he does a brilliant job of directing them and sort of eliciting very genuine performances from these two kids. We also hear Griffin's hilarious story about having the talk, the big talk with his father when he was eight years old. Yeah. Some of my favorite moments recording podcasts is when the engineer, whoever it is, and in this case, it was our good friend, Mark Yoshizumi, where I, I looked over and he was red in the face, stifl- <laughs> stifling a laugh because it was, yeah, I'm not going to spoil it, but it was, it was amazing and completely came out of left field as well, which is, just made it all the better. They also talk about coming of age movies and outgrowing them. How directing is like running a nation. How human cinema will indeed outlast superhero franchises. I sincerely hope that is the case. Should we run the tape? Let's run the tape. Simon. Griffin. Um, Good to see you. (laughs) Good to see you, man. It's been a while. Way too long. Uh, I totally loved your movie. I mean, I really, I know I'm brought here to talk to you about it, but thank God I really loved your movie. Yeah, it's lucky, right? Um, (laughs) You can't lie for 45 minutes. Yeah. I wonder, you know, uh, you and I are both actors and we both, now you, we both made our first films and mm-hmm. I've made, made others. And I wondered if you felt when you were directing that you really like found yourself and like if you liked it so much more than acting, you thought, okay, this is all I want to do. You know, I'll, I'll put acting. I, I care less about acting. I kind of felt that way before I got an opportunity to direct. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, initially I started acting or, or I had the desire to want to act because of my experience in the cinema as an audience member and how I could be transported by a character and a story and moments and situations and they could, had had, cinema had the potential to articulate things that I didn't know how to articulate but I understood in my core some way mm-hmm. um, and, it, and it articulated it for me. And it was some kind of catharsis, like an exchange of communion in that experience as an audience member. Yeah, I've, I mean, I felt having been, you know, an actor with struggling and success and struggling and success, that uneven insecurity, the total all consumption of directing a movie was for me like coming home. I mean, I, I felt like I got to play every part. Yeah. Without having to put on the makeup, yeah, you know, and it was uh, extremely addicting, and and um, and I went through extreme withdrawals when I wrapped and when I finished editing, and it was out. You know, it was like, now, now what? what do I do? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh shit! I have yeah. to have conversations with people. I'm at a loose end. I got to fill time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> till something else grabs me and takes hold of me. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'd felt that urge a long time ago to want to get, as soon as I was on sets as an actor, I was intrigued by the process of how everything comes together and the manifestation of moments and situations. And, and I, like, I like photography and I like equipment and I love the power of editing. Yeah. Um, and so I was always, I would watch every director I ever worked with like a hawk. Um, and, you know, I, I guess in a lot of ways it, it took me a long time getting confidence, the confidence to be able to step into the chair because it's very easy when you don't have that responsibility to, yeah. to sort of be Monday morning quarterback and say, well, I would do it like this. And as you know, when you get on the set and you've got 200 people standing there going, what do you want? What do you want with this? Mm-hmm. What do you want? 
It's different. You've been working on it so long. I mean, I, I remember you talking about this. When did you option the book? I mean, it. it, it I know it was it's about been a eight long, years ago. Eight years ago, yeah. Mm. So development was a while. Um, did you always adapt it? No, you're going to write it, or did you have writers and then you came in? And, uh, I had a I had an overall sort of perspective on it, but we I worked with writers, uh, and then it got to a point where the last writer I had, who's who's credited Gerard Lee um, on the on the film, uh, he had to step off and go and work with Jane Campion, mm-hmm. and then I sort of took over from there and. In a lot of ways, from the beginning being involved, I had a very clear perspective about what the film had to be and how it ended and where that big brave moment is for that kid is about, you know, deciding not to do something. Yeah. Is the bravest moment in the film as opposed to being the hero's, the obvious hero's journey which would be to go out and conquer it. Um, This movie was not about that. Yeah. There were two remarkable things about the movie that, that I want to talk to you about. Was the one is the casting, mm-hmm. and the other is like the surfing. It's the best surfing in a in a narrative film I've seen, and I don't think I've ever seen a surfing movie where the movie stars actually those guys were really surfing, mm-hmm. and those waves were enormous. Mm-hmm. And and how that must have been extremely dangerous, like to shoot, like like how. How were the mechanics of that? Because you guys were all like, these ten foot waves were right there on the shot with you, yeah. and and uh, and I and I love the way you you captured the continuity of waves and the the way they would uh, you know having I'm a terrible surfer, but I grew up surfing in L.A. and that thing of getting your ass kicked trying to get out to the wave, and then the the breath, you know, mm-hmm. being the calm. And then catching the right wave, it was, uh, and then you'd see these kids really up there doing it. Mm, Both mm. of them surfed that well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it took a year to cast these guys, and I knew, you know, I, I'm a lifelong surfer, and you know, I've always had a very strong and potent relationship with the ocean, and it's a major part in forming who I am, um, and it still is. So, I, I, authenticity was an important part of the story for me, I couldn't do it unless I could do it authentically because I've seen every narrative film with surfing in it and I've always yeah. felt a little bit... I always bit, see him fake it. Yeah, I've always, always felt a little bit like disappointed. Yeah. Cut to the stuntman. Or they go with what, they, what I refer to as surf porn, this sort of glossy, perfect scenario, right. which, which it isn't. It's powerful. It's alluring. One day, and it's messy, it'll kick your you ass. Know, the next and I love the underwater photography. Was incredible. Well, that's another whole world that 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 just exists out there that we experience. Yeah. That world, and I, it was really important to try to because I knew that would be cinematic. Yeah. That whole world that exists under there, where sound is pulled back and everything seems slower and and more vivid. Well, you know, it also it looks like a rabid, vicious storm. That's going on under under the sea. Mm-hmm. If you didn't know you were looking at underwater, you think you'd be looking at a turbulent sky. Mm. You know that that was just uh, where a, just a terrible hurricane, terrible weather conditions going to happen. Mm. But that's what exists under the water mm. that you know is throwing you around. When you were when you were shooting the surfing, was that like on the schedule? One day, you know, all day surfing on the water. Um, how does that work? You think you you can't control nature like that. It's like we'd wait and you can sort of 
like any weather, you can predict what's coming five days out. It shores up and gets more uh, more clarity two days before, a day before, and then you pull the trigger that morning, okay, we're going to go into the ocean and we're going to shoot these scenes. And then you're just, you're flying by the seat of your pants. You've, you've got to be quick and you've got to be flexible because it can change on a dime. Mm. And next thing you know, and a couple of times we were out there and we had we had horizontal rain and, and 50 mile an hour winds. So we were just, okay, we're going to get out of here. Yeah. We'll run inside and do some, you know, were there ever any waves that were actually, oh, shit, I don't want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, but it was far more, with the surfing stuff and those scenes, you have to be, you have to be kind of relaxed with the narrative and be flexible because essentially you're going to get what footage you can get and that's it. So you've got to work a little bit with almost like with found footage to structure restructure scenes you know there might be a bit more intricacy in the written um scene but you've got to reduce it down to what is this scene about which is this great exercise anyway Mm -hmm. because that's what we do as actors all the time you know and and so i've only got four shots to tell this story i've got two shots to tell this story cohesively i want those shots to be authentic so the ratio of what you use with the surfing stuff it's a, you know, what is it on land? It's maybe four to one, mm-hmm. right? So it's maybe about 25 to one of what you shoot. You got water on lenses. You got all, you know, all these things that can go wrong. Someone drifts in this direction, you know, you can't hear each other. I'm out there the whole time as well, yelling at these kids because they can't hear me. Mm-hmm. The set comes half the time, like Nautilus, we're in a, a kilometer and a half off the coast, you know, and. Yeah, we had some hairy moments. Oh yeah, it must be. It's it also just sounds. But there's nothing like I had to have non-actors. These guys had never acted before. Yeah, they were surfers. It took a year to find. So them. did you start? I'm going to find surfers first, and yes. then see if they can act. Yes. Yeah. Well, I want to find charismatic kids that can surf, and then we'll we we won't teach them to act. We'll just allow them to be them. Well, you sure did. Allow I mean, them both to be actors. Incredible. Uh, but a very different set to what we're normally used to. Not a mark on the set. Uh-huh. It was, you know, you create an environment where, you know, that, that, that sort of um, military kind of approach to filmmaking, it's a lot of rigor to it. That was all pushed aside. So it was relaxed. It was loose. I shot a lot of rehearsals. Sometimes I would just, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't let the AD and the camera crew panic about slating. It's like, mm-hmm. you know what, what's most important is the footage we get. It's not about how it's slated. Save it to the end. If I say roll, if I wink at you three times, roll a bloody camera, right? Because there might be some stuff. Where'd you find Looney? Uh, Western Australia, just, you know, shy, super shy kid. Over a year, I got down to six kids for the two roles. We flew them all to Sydney, had a two-day workshop. And on the second, at the end of the second day, I brought my DP in with a decent lens and the Alexa and we shot some scenes, a lot of I read scenes with them, improvised stuff, played around. And on the Saturday night after the first day of the workshop, I sat there with a, with a drama teacher that I'd worked with as a young actor, this great Greek guy, Nico Lathuris, wonderful guy. Um, and we had dinner and I said, well, we've got two guys that might be pikelet. We don't have a loony. 
And I said, but there's something interesting about this kid, Ben Spence, who ended up playing Looney. Can you work with him in the morning? I'll work with the other guys. We'll play around. And he arrived. As soon as the camera came, he just figured out what acting was. That's like so it just landed in him. He goes, this is just fun. Yeah, he was mesmerized. He was, he was both funny and menacing and kind of a shit. Vulnerable. And, and vulnerable. Yeah. You know? I've always been drawn to coming-of-age stories. I think possibly now I'm in my early 60s. I've probably outgrown it. But every, you know, early Truffaut films, the very first film I ever did was, you know, kind of an autobiographical coming-of-age thing. It was a short. And I did this, this, this film, Fierce People, with Anton Yelchin, who was at the time 15. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of your movie because he had, a, he had his first love scene with a peer mm-hmm. on camera mm-hmm. before he'd ever had a love scene in mm-hmm. real life. I mean, he was a virgin. Mm. And so directing a, a boy in a love scene mm-hmm. of which Pikelet had mm. more than a few, was probably one of the most beautiful women I ever saw in my life, by the way. <laughs> I love that uh, Elizabeth. Um, and then have him, having him not be, you know, uh, experience as an actor. What what mm. was that like on the set for you as a director to create that kind of trust and intimacy, and also a very a dark aspect with um, you know sexual suffocation or whatever. Mm. I don't even know what the name of that is. Autoerotic asphyxiation. Autoerotic asphyxiation. Yeah, yeah. What? what tell me about that. Uh, well, I had um, I had a I had a sort of a ten day rehearsal period with these guys, and it was just basically going through a process of going through the script and an awareness of the story more than anything and just getting familiar with where they are as characters in each moment. Just a foundation really. And on the way home from from uh, rehearsals at one point, I was in the car with Samson who plays Pikelet and I had to have a bit of a chat with him because I knew this stuff was going to come up. And it was it scheduled it later in the shoot, in the last sort of 10 days of the shoot. And these guys had learnt over the course of the, the learning curve, watching these guys grow on a set from day to day was just profound. I mean, you know. Well, you're capturing them in real life at a turning point in any kid's life. Yeah, but you know, they're actually such a significant age, kind of and you're filming it. it. They're living the experience yeah. of me being mentor yeah. as well. And you're the mentor character. In the film, course, yeah. And... They're developing this sense of responsibility. They're going to work every day. They work at five in the morning and there's this sort of, and you saw them and they wouldn't allow their own parents to come to the set. They just wouldn't do it. They were like, leave, you can't be here because they were growing into young men. Uh, So I had this drive home with Samson. I said, look, we're going to have to have some conversations about a few different things and I want you to know that whatever we talk about, it'll be in confidence and... You know, I was trying to be very delicate about the subject, around the subject, just sort of making him aware that it, it's going to happen and we're going to have to talk about these things. I said, yeah, how old is he? Fine. He was uh, 16 and a half at wow, the time. Okay. And, and he cut me off and he just said, and this is the kind of kid he is, he cut me off and he goes, look, yeah, I know what you're talking about. You don't need to worry about anything. He just said that to me and I was like, okay. And then he went to go on it. I don't need to know anymore, mate. As long as you're okay, I'm okay, and we'll talk about it as it comes. Um, and by the time we got to that moment, he's a really confident kid. 
Um, and I think there's an aspect of because these kids had grown up surfing, there's a real physical awareness, there's a physical confidence to them. Mm, right. and, and that's sort of why I had to cast non-actors for in those roles because in the 70s kids were, they were more present in the moment. They, they, they were alive, like you would have experienced it. Sure, not, well, there were less distractions. They're, on, they're not on, hiding, they, they're not disappearing yeah, into they're something. They're not looking at a screen, they're not checking out how they're, they're being perceived by total strangers. They don't, you know. Right. They're it, thrusting a, themselves into the world. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, in a, and kind of in a physical way because their, their presence is completely there. Mm-hmm. Another thing that was really interesting for me about casting, having non-actors on the set is that all the actors, if they're acting, it sticks out like dog's balls yeah. against these non-actors. And suddenly it's like, you know, you know, you know that scene in East of Eden with uh, Natalie Wood and James Dean and they're sitting in the grass together and she's acting so sort of mannered and perfectly and he's this sort of new school mumbling yeah. naturalism. That's what it looks yeah, like when you put an actor yeah. next to them. So you've got to kind of... You've got to measure the level of performance of, of acting next to this naturalistic stuff. So everyone well, else is getting like that. It must be your story about uh, uh, your car ride. You know, explaining the facts of life reminds me of my dad explaining me the facts of life. And he said uh, it was very similar to yours. He said, uh, "Listen, Griffin, we gotta we gotta talk about something. Um, you know, it's gonna be kind of awkward, but I think it's important." I said, "You don't. Have, I already know." I already know. I'm about six or something. It's eight. I don't know. He goes, what, what do you know? He goes, no such thing as Santa Claus. I went, yeah, well, that's true. But uh, the thing I want to talk to you about is, you see, your mother has a vagina and I have a penis. And I take my penis and the way you were born, I put it inside your, and I go, wait, wait, what does this have to do with Santa? <laughs> <laughs> It just totally freaked me out. <laughs> I had to share that. Two worlds just got exploded. <laughs> exactly. One and after the other. Um, it just occurred to me, just going back to the kid thing for a sec, they, they sent the parents away. Do you, when you work with kids, you know, who weren't emancipated or under mm-hmm. 18 or 17, I forget what it is, mm-hmm. You have to have a guardian. You got they've got all these like school things mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, a, a trailer has to, you know, mm-hmm. be there for school. Did you have those kind of restrictions? Oh, and yeah. how many hours you can work yeah, and all yeah, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Did did those apply? Yeah, absolutely. I did. Yeah. So we had um Looney was fifteen and nine months. He had to be fifteen and nine months to do the role, because the role he smoked cigarettes. And then Pikelet, Pikelet in Western Australia, and it, state to state, he had to be 16 to do the sexual stuff. And, you know, his parents were aware of it. Um, you know, they were obviously allowed to be on set if they wanted to. That was about their own agreement yeah, yeah. between, you know, mum and dad and kid. And the kids and, and, and Samson was like, I don't, I don't want you here. And they were okay about it. There was one interesting moment and it sort of speaks a lot to uh, that idea of, of becoming your own person is that there's a scene where he's chopping firewood, um, pikelet, and, and Samson's from the city. He's a city kid. 
he was not much good at chopping wood and we had to teach him. And he'd been practising and he's out there splitting the wood, no problem, going through it like butter. And then his parents showed up onto the set and, and sat by the monitor and he saw them. And suddenly he couldn't cut the wood anymore. It just wasn't every time he'd swing the axe, it just wouldn't split. And it was like someone had taken yeah. his energy out. And I went over to him and I looked at the first AD and he's a salty guy. He looked at me and raised his eyebrows. I like, oh, this is curious. And I went over to Samson quietly and said, you're right. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's that kind of kid. And I said, is this, you want me to, is it because your parents are here? You feel self-conscious? Like, no, 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 it's all right, it's all right. Anyway, he kept going. He couldn't get through it. And he was starting to get a bit embarrassed and flustered. And I went over quietly to the parents and said, I think you guys should make yourself scarce. And they left and he saw that they'd left. And as soon as they were gone, bang, straight through the wood again. Fascinating. So it's just like this, this sort of strength that he gained being at work in an environment that he felt safe and confident to be his own person. He'd lost that as soon as his parents. That's, that's beautiful. The presence of his I have parents. the exact opposite of a story of when I was directing, we're all kids in this, this movie called Fierce People, when I was directing Anton, he has a moment where he's been raped mm-hmm. uh, um, by Chris Evans' character. And he's just filled with shame and there's a shot of him like losing his shit, just crying hysterically under a tree. And he kind of had to, he didn't have anything to draw from. I mean, he hadn't Mm -hmm. even been, you know, there was like, um, I couldn't say, so now in the scene, this guy raped you and he put you, he couldn't give that direction like that to a 15 year old kid. And so he, and he was, he was also, I've got my big crying scene. He kept calling it my crying scene coming up. So he's already really worked up about it. And I was, kind of like wondering how how to guide him because I really needed him to go to some place and become yeah. emotionally hysterical. And you've got to get it. You've and got to, and get, I got to get, get it. Go. I mean, the whole thing is building. And his mother, the Russian woman, a defector from the Soviet Union, was a, was a uh, ice skating star in the Soviet Union. They're very, very close. And he, she said to me as we're kind of setting up. She goes, you're nervous about the scene, are you? I went, yeah, I, I kind of am. Do you have any advice? She goes, I would never say this, but but if you'd like, would you like me to talk to him? Well, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll give that a shot. So we're about ready to go. She goes, I want to talk to him right before he goes to, before you roll. I said, okay. And she goes, I don't know what they're saying. I could have listened. I took my cans off. And they're having this conversation and they're going back. And I see him go and I see him. And then she walks away and he just loses his shit, loses it. And I film it. And I, I think I maybe shot it twice. I mean, I already got it the first time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what she said to him. I didn't ask. But it was like, you know, that's how that worked. That was the good she side just, of having a parent knew. on the set with a young kid. So I have a question because... This this movie found me. This yeah. like this project found me, and it and it grabbed me, and it took hold of me. And and you know there was a process that you, you, you're immersed in it completely. And there was a point where I said to to my wife Rebecca, 
uh, I think about maybe five or six weeks into the cut, I said, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to make another movie because I don't think I'll ever find something that I love as much as this. And, I, you know, it's like when you have a kid, yes. <laughs> you know, and you go, I don't think I can ever have another kid because I, <laughs> I don't have any more love in me, you know, because uh, this kid has all my love. Where does it come from? Yeah. Where does that that extra energy come from? And And... Yeah, we were talking earlier about the idea of the emptiness at the end, and then how do you pick up the pieces and move forward, and then and then and then what is it that kicks you into the next thing? And one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you about this is because you're an actor that moved into directing, but you've also you you've made a bunch of films and documentaries, so you keep working. You know, and you keep, you keep finding these things that are important enough to you that, that capture you. And I'm wondering if, it is, if it's more the case of looking or like for me it's sort of leave town and the doorbell rings. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean I, uh, after finishing my first film, I had that emptiness because everything was filled and I was so complete. And then having it be empty, it reminded me of the thing I hated about acting, which was, where's my next job going to come from? Mm. Only this was like withdrawal 10 times worse mm. because it was like, where's my next, you know, country that I'm going to run come yeah. next? Where, yeah. Where's my next nation? Yeah. So yet looking is, is what, I've, what I've done, you know, constantly, constantly looking and with an underlying subtext of like, what if I don't love this as much as I love the other one? Mm-hmm. What what if I, I'm in the middle and I kind of don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. What if you know? Is this material going to be when strong you do look, enough? Because there's a lot of stuff to look at. But when you do look, do you have? Do you find that you have like a kind of an area that you're looking in? Like you, you create parameters of like, I want to do something I, that fits in this world, or I don't, you know. Well. Because yeah. otherwise it's just throwing spaghetti at the ceiling. Yes, really, it, it, you know, I, I, I read a lot. I, I read a lot of books and my, my taste and interest in books are like all over the place. It'll be nonfiction, fiction. And I find that the books that really mean a lot to me usually have the themes that will mean a lot to me in a movie. Mm-hmm. And they will be pretty diverse. They'll be, you know, I've yet to make a historical period movie, but mm-hmm. I would love to make a historical period movie, you know, about someone like Grant, who's like a, such a wildly complicated, you know, figure. And, and I think about what is it about that character? Why do you want to make a thing about a president and a Civil War hero? Um, that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is this guy thought he was a failure. And when it came time, he had stuff inside of himself. He had leadership. And, and characteristics he never even knew he had mm-hmm. that could lead a nation through a civil war and, and, and become a president. And it's, it's that arc, that character arc. And mm-hmm. if you can find something like that in, in a coming of age, mm-hmm. you know, there was a period I mentioned I like coming of age. That's all I used to think about was mm-hmm. coming of age. And mm-hmm. I went, I've outgrown coming of age. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm not interested in that anymore. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not interested in... Uh, stories about old guys either, but I think about death all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's usually, you know, your life. You know what, it doesn't have an obvious, it doesn't, you know, life doesn't have genres, you know. It's like I'm only interested in a comedy with heart, you know. That's 
that's in a way a bigger bowl of spaghetti. Yeah. You know, it's more like where you're at in your life and 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 the thing still finds you. You'll still have it, it finds you. But you got it'll have a better chance of finding you if you're also looking. Yeah. And the other thing too is I guess once you have something, well, for me now, I have something kind of behind me, and I'm having that feeling. I feel I feel satiated. I feel a bit full. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I'll have a, a decaf macchiato or something and sit back and have a rest. Mm. But uh, that's not going to be for long because I I know myself too well, sure. and that emptiness will be there. Well, that'll be a happy emptiness because I have done something. But um, the the idea of going well, I want to do, I want to do something completely different. And I know that even if it's completely different, it still has to have those elemental components to it that are about, uh, you know, humanity that connect in some way. It might be an extraordinary character like Grant, but the extraordinary thing about that is that historically we know is an extraordinary, has an extraordinary story, but he still just has that humanity and there was that thing that clicked within him Mm -hmm. that is a very human thing that is relatable to most people, you know, and they they all live with that within them in a way and I think that that has to, that is always going to pop up and I think, and I think in a lot of way that is, uh, that is the thing that drew me to movies in the first place Mm -hmm. and I think it's, you know, maybe I'm an optimist, but that's the element that will keep the movies being uh, viable in the future. And that, 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 you know, when it's all said and done and the world of superheroes, you know, starts to wear thinner and thinner, and I think there's always going to be a place for that, for that spectacle. But within it, the idea of humanity on a screen and, and the celebration of individualism on screen uh, is still going to keep it alive and keep it potent. Yeah, I do too. I do too. So you're um, Joan Doc, yeah. right? Yeah. A- about your aunt. Yeah. Right? The idea to pursue that was um, nostalgic, um, emotional. You know... You know uh, I grow, growing up with Joan Didion as your aunt, you know, and her husband John John Dunn, John Gregory Dunn. It were talk about the seventies. I mean, when I was a kid, and I was just those boys' age, um, John and Joan were, you know, my idols, and they were like they were so cool. They were like, you know, writing about Manson and covering wars and. They give parties for Tom Wolfe and Janis Joplin who come to the house, and they always included me in that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like that—that's when I made my first short. It was a coming-of-age story where I was um, at that very party uh, for Tom Wolfe that John and Joan gave, and they were incredible uh, to me. I mean, really towering figures. Mm-hmm. And then you know, John died, and Joan's daughter died, and I became—you know—I. I, I grew up and we became peers. She mm-hmm. became my aunt who I was now looking after as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and I knew we, we we made a short movie together that she asked me to do to promote Blue Nights, her, her last book. And 
it was during that time that I realized there was never a documentary about this woman that mm -hmm. has been such an influence on so many other writers and on so many other lives. You know, so many, so many young women who read Joan Didion for the first time, it transforms their lives, you know? Mm -hmm. And I hear those stories over and over again. And so there, there'd never been a doc about her for the simple reason is she never allowed anyone to do a doc. Mm -hmm. So when I asked her, she said yes, because I would be the only person who could make it, mm -hmm. who, who she would be comfortable enough. Oh, with. and she's so beautifully candid yeah. in those interviews. Yeah, I mean, it's it's beautiful. Yeah. And then and then to get that the perspective of your experience within the documentary as well, it, there's an intimacy to it that's really moving. Yeah, that takes yeah. someone that is an icon and brings them into such a personal place. Yeah, I was really happy that that happened. In a know, satisfyingly personable, personal place where, you know, they say, like, never meet your icon, mm -hmm. you know. It can always be disappointing, but this is, this is not at all disappointing. You know, it's great, it's exciting to see, you know, how candid she is and how, um, how vulnerable she allows herself to be. Yeah. Yeah, that that was very much what I was hoping would come out when, you know, when it, you're making a doc, it's so different than making a, a narrative mm. because you walk away from a scene with actors and you know you've got it and, you know, on to the next. When you're interviewing someone, particularly your aunt, you know, or a family member mm -hmm. who's gone through a lot of tragedy and been so, and, and, and such a important person in an intellectual level, mm -hmm. um, you walk away never really sure if you've got it or not. Mm -hmm. And you can't keep going back, hey, John, I forgot to ask, I forgot to ask. Yeah. But one aspect about her personality and her character that I wanted is I grew up and she was funny and, and laughed like all the time. Mm -hmm. And people who think of Joan, um, who just read her or might you know see her picture, just picture her as this you know, mistress of doom. Mm -hmm. And um, she writes about such dark, fatal things. Um, you know, the, the person I saw is the one that I got to show people on camera. Yeah, yeah. And then also, I guess, the choice of, uh, you, you had a lot of great old footage that you could use. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there was probably a lot more that, you know. There was indeed. I always knew it was gonna be heavily archival. And, but those, those, those films, are the, the like home movies, mm -hmm. A lot of people think that that was like our personal home movies. There were actually Roddy McDowell's. You had a little Bolex and he would just shoot these parties of all these people mm. uh, in, the, in the 60s. And I, they were, somebody released them all to YouTube and I happened to come across them and I went, holy shit, that's my mother. That's my father. Wow. That's my, look at John. I mean, they were all like, they were all there. I mean, and, and it goes on. Anyone can look them up. It, it captures a period of Hollywood yeah, from 64, 65, 66, 67, of all these like extraordinary writers and directors and movie stars, all at like the peak of their lives. Everybody, Jane Fonda, all these people, they're all just like glowing. They're just smoking and drinking on the beach and playing with, you know, their dogs and their young children. And it, it, it's so beautiful to 16 see. 16 mil, not eight mil? I, no, it was eight mil, but it was, it was a handheld Bolex. Yeah, yeah, I know the ones. Yeah. And uh, yeah, anyway, it's just a timepiece. It makes you want to weep looking at this because, yeah. you know, everybody's gone. 
and you just see them at the zenith of their lives, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Just I have like a, us. Well, I've have I have a lot of that Super Eight footage of of yeah. You know, don't hang on to it, man. Well, I have one of your weddings. Oh, which one? <laughs> All right, let's get out of here. <laughs> Griffin Dunn and Simon Baker. Thanks so much to those guys. That was a fantastic conversation. Listeners, we are dropping fantastic conversations for you each and every week, including next week, Abby Jacobson of Broad City in conversation with Samantha Irby. And after that, recorded live at Rough Trade in London, The Raincoats in conversation with Proto Martyr. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are served. And of course, while you're on the interwebs, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube where you can find full video episodes recorded live at the Sonos store here in New York. And of course, drop by talkhouse.com daily for all kinds of written goodness. Today's episode is recorded and co-produced by Mark Yershizumi. Thanks, Mark. Till next Thursday. We'll see you then. 